You're listening to the ERLC Podcast. Well, that's because there's no good way to set it up when you have a computer right here that I need to I'm sorry read. I started this. My bad. Yeah, you did start it. Forgive me. <clears throat> it's a pandemic. Come on, everybody. It's a pandemic. All right, well, let's do this pandemic podcast. Ooh, as soon as let's I'm try this Special pandemic episode that's of right. the ERLC Isn't podcast. Isn't that what this podcast has been? I think so. Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the ERLC Podcast, where every week we're talking about our work here at the ERLC and focusing on what Christians need to know about the things going on in the world. I'm Josh Wester, and with me on the podcast today, as always, are my co-host, Lindsay Nicolay. Hello from week 5,000 of the pandemic. And Brent Leatherwood. Hello from battling what I hope is allergies. I think is allergies. This, this is the time of year where my allergies usually start taking me down a peg or two, but you know, it's, it's 2020. It's to quote, uh, our, our favorite colleague, Megan Smith. It's a pandemic. It's no, a, just, Me- you just really okay. never know Megan what you're Megan is quoting Lindsay. Hello. I'm sorry. I have to take back the credit for this. <laughs> okay. Sorry, Megan Smith. I was trying to give you a shout out on the, <laughs> she, Megan the RLC a podcast. Out that she joined, joined along with it. Gary hates that phrase. <laughs> <laughs> but also my question is, is coronavirus, like, they've been saying it's airborne. So is it like air wave borne? You're not going to give us the COVID through our uh, through our microphones, are you? Nope. And any scientists who are listening to this podcast are already uh, beating their heads against the wall. It's, yeah, it's I just promise. A, we, a moment of levity, everybody. A little moment of levity. We endeavor to bring you the best and most accurate information about the state of coronavirus. and. Uh, Rapid update. It does not travel through the airwaves. There you go. Or exactly. whatever or whatever kind of internet waves we're talking <laughs> through. <laughs> In any case, excited to be back with you guys. Last week, we went through a, just a tumultuous week and covered a mountain of news. And so this week... Well, it's really no different, but we're excited about the show today, excited uh, later in the show to talk to one of my personal heroes, uh, Pastor Bryant Wright, who is now the president of Send Relief, and we have a great conversation with him that we actually have already taped, so we we know what the contents of that conversation are going to be, and we look forward to you getting to listen to that. So, Lindsay, so that we can get into it, tell us what the ERLC has been talking about. Okay, so this week we're less breaking news heavy, and though I do have a piece of more like breaking news that we discussed last week that's really good. We'll talk about it in a minute. But first, I want to discuss an article by Brittany Salmon. She watched the Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma, which we've heard about. I have not watched it. It's kind of like that Food Inc. documentary. I don't want to watch it. I just don't want to not be able to unsee it. So um, I'm relying on Brittany and our colleague Jason at the Gospel Coalition did a review of it. But Brittany did a review of The Social Dilemma here, and it's called Three Ways of Thinking for a Healthy Relationship with Technology, The Social Dilemma, and Our Social Media Habits. And many people who are watching uh, The Social Dilemma, which talks to former employees of some of these social media companies and reveals some of the insider secrets about how social media is designed to be more addictive, kind of like a as we've heard other people talk about, kind of like a slot machine or something like that, and how social media is designed to silo us into different groups and think that everybody else thinks like us about about things. Even though there are some really probably scary things that we encounter, that we would encounter in this documentary, Brittany just takes the line that we... We don't need to get rid of social media altogether. We just need to be careful. And so her her several points are make your smartphone work for you. 
know when to step away and see the potential for gospel good. So I appreciated her balance take there. She quotes from uh, Andy Crouch's The TechWise Family. There are other great books out there that you could read um, to do your own deep dive into this and decide how your family's going to operate. But I was glad that that Brittany gave a rundown of this documentary and caused us to check our hearts and to be intentional in our social media habits. Lindsay, I'm really glad that we published this piece. Uh, this Netflix special is something that has already gained a ton of attention. And social media is something that almost everyone we know spends too much time on social media and engaging in this. I know there are people who manage to escape all of that, but for the majority of people in my life and, you know, anecdotally, I, I just know that social media is a, is a real addiction. It's something that we turn to any time we get a spare moment. We're constantly having our phones in our hand or scrolling on our computers, just checking um, the different social media sites that we're engaged in. And there's only more popping up all the time. And so, especially now as a parent and, and trying to monitor not only what uh, my son is spending time, you know, watching when he's using uh, a screen or a device, but also trying to monitor how much and how addicting and all of that stuff. I, I think this is something that's really important for parents to grapple with. Josh, you're right. And it's important that parents especially look at our own social media habits uh, and not just parents, but adults, because we're modeling for younger generations. So they're going to, they're going to follow suit uh, of what we're doing and even more so because they're more technically inclined. It's like they're born with chips in their brains just to know they know how to operate these devices at such a young age is crazy. So check out that review. Next up, we have a great piece of news we talked about last week, and this is by our policy staff. It's an explainer about the executive order to protect born alive babies. And this is a piece of legislation that is uh, just duh legislation. Truthfully, these are babies that would be born alive, um, no matter the circumstances of his or her birth. And this this order that President Trump signed says that they would have the same dignity and the same rights as every other individual and are entitled to the same protections under federal law. And honestly, a society that cannot get that right, <laughs> I don't know what else we can get right. Um, these these little ones, if they, they are born alive, they have inherent worth and dignity, and we should do whatever we can to protect them. So we are very excited that uh, President Trump signed this executive order. We are behind this. We are for this. And at the ERLC, this is one of the ways that we work to protect life. That's really well said, Lindsay. When you think about the fact that at the ERLC, so much of our work is about human dignity. And that starts with the fact that we think every life is valuable. And we believe that life begins uh, at conception. So when we talk about the fact that that life that's in the womb is a person, we think that it has dignity and deserves to be protected. And so in this case, we're just talking about a something you said that should have been basically a no-brainer. It should have been the easiest possible call for, for a, a government that is committed to, as a first principle, protecting life to ensure that every possible you know, medical care or medical precaution is taken uh, in caring for children who are born alive. They, they were born. And so if it was uh, as a result of a failed abortion, we still want to see those children be cared for and that for, for their lives to be treated with dignity. And so we're absolutely supportive of this executive order. And we're still praying for a time when a measure like this or an executive order like this would be totally unnecessary because 
we won't be contending with children being born alive after abortion because maybe for the first time in a long time, many of us are starting to dream about and pray about again uh, the possibility of, of a United States uh, where abortion is no longer the law of the land. Yeah, I was thankful for the executive order here, Congress. Let's, let's make this a permanent thing. That's a good, strong call, Brent. And let's protect our little ones who need critical medical care. And then finally, I want to discuss an article written by our colleague, Jason Thacker. He's our technology expert, and he has been subscribing, trying to subscribe during the pandemic to different news magazines to read rather than getting his news off of social media. And um, one of the ones that he recommends is The Economist, which I want to be smarter than I am and subscribe to that magazine and read it because I hear good things about it. But it's brought up a topic for him that he's written about. So this article is called, What is Digital Authoritarianism? The Use of Technology to Suppress Human Rights. And so he explains, digital authoritarianism, also known as techno-authoritarianism, is the way that many leaders around the world wield the power of the internet and technology to gain or solidify control over their people. So we've talked about this on the podcast. Authoritarianism isn't new. We we uh, talked about rulers who control their people, control elections, like, for example, in Belarus. Um, we see this in China in many ways. It's just sad that uh, leaders who are going to abuse the rights of their people are going to find whatever means they can do that. And unfortunately, technology lends a a prime opportunity for uh, many authoritarians to to extend their reach of power. Yeah, Jason has been so good in being a voice that uh, has reminded people technology can be a tool for good, but at the same time, as, as you just said, Lindsay, it it can be a force uh, for for a lot of bad. And in these sorts of countries where you have leaders um, that are either autocratic uh, or, or tend towards autocracy, uh, they certainly can use these sorts of digital tools to manipulate people in those countries. And, uh, and that's certainly something that we should be aware of, uh, we should be on guard against, and we should stand against uh, as people who believe that we are all made in God's image. So those are just a few samples of the articles that we have up at ERLC.com. Of course, there are plenty of others covering a variety of topics. Um, we look forward to next week as well. We'll see what kind of news uh, hits our stations and our social media channels and um, what else 2020 will bring our way. But for now, that's your look at what's happening on ERLC.com. Hey, thanks, Lindsay. And that brings us to the culture section for the week. So Brent, tell us what's going on. All right, so we begin this week in Washington, Washington, D.C., where Judge Amy Coney Barrett was nominated to fill the vacated Supreme Court seat created with the passing of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So uh, this occurred last week, and as we discussed uh, in the lead-up to the unveiling of who uh, President Trump would pick— this uh, SCOTUS fight injects yet another incredible storyline into the roller coaster ride uh, that is 2020. Judge Barrett began meeting with senators on the Hill this week, which is the tradition for nominees in an attempt to answer questions about her record and her judicial philosophy. 
Uh, USA Today report on uh, Barrett's Capitol Hill meetings also contained what I thought was a, a really interesting note. She was asked, you know, as is the case uh, typically, she was asked to fill out a questionnaire uh, by the Senate Judiciary Committee. And those documents reveal that White House officials called her the day after Justice Ginsburg passed on September 19th, and President Trump offered her the job on September 21st when she met him at the White House. So uh, that just shows you how quickly uh, this this nomination moved. And um, there were multiple days last week filled with uh, speculation about uh, who uh, the president might nominate. But uh, behind the scenes, this was seemingly wrapped up uh, fairly quickly. Dr. Moore said in his statement, Brent, that uh, when the nomination of Judge Barrett was announced, that he's been following her career for a long time and has admired her in terms of her judicial philosophy and also that she's an adopted parent. And it is, you know, as a social conservative, this is a Supreme Court nominee that I am incredibly excited about, the ERLC is incredibly excited about. And we are, you know, eager to to see someone like Judge Barrett on the Supreme Court. And so this is a process we'll be paying uh, just an incredible amount of attention to. Yeah, she seems like another powerhouse of a woman who has um, convictions that we can support and get behind. I have loved seeing uh, the pictures of her family and just pulled up an article and was reading about her her and her husband and um, her children and different things like that. I don't think I could juggle things the way that she does. I'm not sure how in the world she does it, but uh, I'm just as a woman from the outside in watching this, it's exciting to see how, how it will play out. Also, I just as a side note, I think I'm kind of, you know, we talk about social media addiction. I think I'm kind of getting addicted to the roller coaster ride that is 2020 because it's always it's always something big and unexpected. You know, it's not just been like smooth sailing. <laughs> so it's just like, what crazy thing is going to happen next? Yeah, I, I, I want to get off the ride. Like, can I, <laughs> I, I, I would, the next, at the next turn, can, can I, can I just exit and maybe you continue on ahead? Great. I'm, I'm, I'm here for seeing you, you know, scream and, and right. get your picture made well, on the hill and all that stuff. But I, I, yes. I kind of want to get off. Yeah. Well, after 30, you know, I can't ride real roller coasters anymore because they just mess me up, even though I used to love them. So this is the only kind of <laughs> metaphorical roller coaster that I can ride. I really well, hope that that's not true across the board for 30-year-olds uh, in, in terms of roller coasters, but probably my favorite thing related to the roller coaster that is 2020 is seeing all these people who keep posting, uh, you know, on New Year's Eve, there's the clock's going to be counting down, and then as soon as it gets there, it's just going to start going backwards <laughs> and just take us, you know, take us back into 2020 instead of letting us out of this awful, awful year. Well, and uh, to recall one of our, our favorite episodes, remember... It may be a roller coaster ride, but because of COVID, you are only allowed to scream inside your heart. So <laughs> that's right. <laughs> uh, to pick up though, where where Josh left off, yes, Dr. Moore said in a Baptist Press story about Judge Barrett's nomination. He said, "quote There is no question that Judge Barrett is qualified by intellectual acumen and years of experience uh, to serve on the highest court in the land." And SBC Executive Committee President uh, Dr. Ronnie Floyd said that she is known to be a woman of deep Christian faith, a committed wife, and mother of seven children. She is more than deserving to receive not only the nomination to be the next justice of the Supreme Court, but also deserves to be confirmed. So 
obviously this is this is something that uh, a lot of folks are both uh, affirming of uh, and and folks that are in the kind of political activist world that they're excited about. So to refer back to that USA Today story uh, that I was talking about before, it details that uh, Barrett met this week. She started her her meetings with Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and Vice President Mike Pence, who in the occasion, if there were to be some sort of a tie uh, during the confirmation vote on the floor, Vice President Pence would would be the one who breaks that tie. A little uh, Senate procedural quiz for you there, right there, so you can impress your friends this coming weekend with that. Uh, and later that afternoon, she met with other key Republican senators on the Judiciary Committee, uh, such as Senator Chuck Grassley, Senator Ted Cruz, Senator Mike Lee, and Senator Lindsey Graham, who serves as the chairman of the Judiciary Committee. Uh, it also points out that several Democratic senators uh, are, are not going to be meeting with Judge Barrett because of disagreements over how the process is playing out just weeks before the presidential election. So uh, needless to say, this is going to be something that I'm sure we will be talking about in the weeks ahead. Speaking of the presidential election, so we we had an event uh, that was nationally televised on Tuesday uh, that featured the the two nominees uh, squaring off on the same stage together. Generally, we would be expecting what's known as a debate, a meeting of the minds, if you will, to truly persuade voters out there. I'm not sure that that's what you could call what we saw on Tuesday night. Maybe, maybe the word you're looking for is fracas, or yes. just yes. chaos. Yes, yes. Uh, the only thing that prevented it from being a WWE wrestling match is is that uh, both participants kept their their shirts on. Right, right. I mean, right? Them, them literally being tethered to a to a podium was right. what kept things kind of civil. So, uh, God, President- God bless Chris Wallace. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, I'll get to that in a second. So President Donald Trump and former Vice President Joe Biden met uh, on stage for the the first are of what are supposed to be uh, three debates, uh, but it, it really was just 90 minutes of, I'm just not sure what. Uh, Chris Wallace from Fox News served as the moderator, but the freewheeling affair saw little of that. Uh, the the main news or main clips to come out of the debate, for maybe those of you who missed it, President Trump told a white supremacist group called the Proud Boys to, quote, stand back and stand by. And Vice President Biden told Trump to, quote, shut up. And nearly everyone was left wondering what we just witnessed. Apparently, 73 million viewers tuned in to see the debate uh, that is less than the uh, initial group of viewers who tuned in to see uh, the first debate of 2016. But still, by historic standards, it, it was a very large event. Uh, what what else do y'all think about what we witnessed? I don't think that there's any reason to sugarcoat the fact that a very common sentiment, both during and after the debate, was that America lost. Watching one of, or, or both of the men, one of whom is going to be our next president, engage in what honestly was an unmitigated disaster is incredibly disheartening. It just shows you uh, the current state of 
public discourse. And it was incredibly, it was incredibly painful to watch. Particularly, I mean, it's hard to pick one moment because there were so many moments that you would want to comment on or engage. Uh, Brent, you mentioned the questions about, you know, disavowing or denouncing white supremacy and racism. And look, as Christians, we want as a bare minimum threshold, we, we don't expect uh, our political leaders to always agree with us or share our theology, but we want everyone when they're asked about something as simple as racism to be able to give a clear and a qualified response. And without equivocation, regardless of what that might cost you politically in terms of, of who your supporters are, whether that's on the right or on the left. And so, you know, white supremacy is demonic, wicked, and evil. That should be easy for people to say. And that was a subject that came up in the course of the debate. And there have been, I've seen so many people comment on it and talking about, well, it was a confusing moment. There was a lot of crosstalk. President Trump, you know, still has a, the, the nation's largest microphone and has the opportunity to say whatever he wants, whenever he wants to say it. And so that's, that's something, a clear disavowal of white supremacy uh, from the president is something that is, is welcomed and needed. Absolutely true, Josh. You know, Lindsay, you and I were discussing earlier in the day on Tuesday how great it would be to publish an article at ERLC just saying how to watch the debate with your kids. And the answer was don't. Like, after seeing what we saw on Tuesday night, uh, don't do that because it was it was truly sad. Speaking of, of that uh, particular aspect of it, there were multiple <laughs> teachers there were anecdotal stories of multiple teachers, you know, social studies teachers, civics teachers who had basically assigned for their students, hey, watch the debate on Tuesday night. We only, we only get to see this every every four years. And there were multiple instances where apparently the teachers the next morning apologized to their students for assigning them <laughs> that, that task. <laughs> it, it was a far cry uh, from the very high-minded Lincoln Douglas debates that that uh, that many people point to, which again, presidential trivia quiz was actually not about. It was not for the the White House, uh, so we should should all remember that. Uh, well, CBS News reports that the commission that oversees uh, the general election presidential debates said Wednesday of this week that it will be making changes to the format of the remaining two debates. One key change it plans to implement, cutting off the microphones of either President Trump or Vice President Biden if they break the rules, according to a source familiar with the commission's deliberations. The plans have not been finalized, and the commission is still considering how it would uh, how it would carry out the plan. But uh, that, that could certainly be a notable change uh, in the remaining two debates. So, all right, moving on from presidential politics to COVID-19. Uh, Axios reported this week that over the last seven days, cases are now rising in 25 states across the country. The good news is, is at the moment, it is not a sharp rise, but it is still something to keep an eye on as we're approaching the time frame that many medical experts believe a, a potential new wave of uh, cases could wash over the country. One private sector company is taking a step to fight the virus. CBS News reports that United Airlines will be the first U.S. airline to roll out a COVID-19 testing program for passengers. So starting October 15th, flyers from San Francisco bound for Hawaii will be given the option to order an at-home testing kit or reserve a time 
for a rapid test at the airport. And Lindsay, since you love to travel and you love flying, uh, which one of those options would uh, would you choose? I don't really want either because I'm not flying yet. So I'm not I'm not flying until maybe the pandemic is over. Just the way it is. Pregnant, then I'll have a little baby. Just not the time. For I would. Us. I mean, Lindsay, I, I think I'm sympathetic to you on the on the baby front, but. I think I would fly to Hawaii at almost any time. That's and true. Hawaii. I'll it's quarantine true. there, you know, and hopefully have some place on the beach that I'm like looking out on as I'm in quarantine. I got to tell you, though, I'll do whatever it takes not to have them swab my nose. That's, that's right. That's really that's what right. it is for me. What does the at-home testing kit entail? Does anybody know? I, I think they both uh, involve the, the swab option. Uh, then Josh can't do either. Then He's I'm just waiting luck. for 2020, 2025 right. or something. That's to right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, this is modeled off of other instances we've started seeing where proactive testing is helping to isolate cases. Uh, for instance, we saw that this week in the NFL. So NPR reports that two NFL teams are suspending all in-person club activities after the Tennessee Titans, right here in Nashville, announced that three players and five other personnel have tested positive for the coronavirus. Joining the Titans in shutting down in-person activities are the Minnesota Vikings, who played against them this last Sunday. So, COVID-19 You know the Vikings has, are so mad at the Titans. <laughs> yes, yes. So, well, COVID-19 has now come to the, the NFL um, it's it's going to be interesting to see how they've they they handle it uh, with other uh, instances in college football. We have seen games either canceled outright or, or delayed until later in the season, and it will be interesting to see uh, what happens here with uh, both of these clubs. I guess the story for me has really been my real surprise. They've been able to pull off professional sports as long as they have because. I honestly wasn't very optimistic. And so I was really sad to see uh, the coronavirus outbreak happen, you know, right here with us, with the Tennessee Titans. And I'm hopeful that they're going to be able to navigate it and keep playing football. That's right. And I will admit, I was one of the most pessimistic people, particularly as it pertains to sports. And I'm just thankful that uh, the Major League Baseball playoffs began this week. And uh, hopefully it will sail right through uh, to the conclusion of the World Series without any uh, any stoppages. So uh, we we need sports to continue. And uh, so far, uh, we, we've we've had some pretty successful games and seasons. All right. On a final note, in SBC life, we have another entity presidential spot opening up soon. Uh, so Baptist Press reported this week that a search committee has been formed at Guidestone. From the story, no timeline has been set regarding O.S. Hawkins, the current president, uh, regarding his eventual retirement. He assumed the presidency of Guidestone in 1997 and has seen the ministry grow into the sponsor of the largest faith-based mutual fund family in the U.S., including the mutual funds. Guidestone has more than $18 billion in assets under management as of August 31st, 2020. And among Guidestone's greatest accomplishments is seeing Mission Dignity, uh, its program that provides financial assistance to retired Southern Baptist ministers and workers and their widows, as it's raised more than $150 million during his tenure. So, you know, we we had a season where uh, several entities turned over and we, we had new presidents 
assume those roles, and uh, we we will certainly be praying for Guidestone uh, to to uh, identify uh, the person who uh, will eventually take over from O.S. Hawkins. Yeah, I said we're about to talk to Bryant Wright, who is an SBC legend. Um, O.S. Hawkins is an SBC legend in his own right. He has been a leader in our denomination for decades. He he was actually pastor at the historic First Baptist of Dallas. He is somebody who has just been a really faithful leader. And honestly, mission dignity is the thing that one of the biggest things he's associated with that he has spearheaded. And that is such an important ministry. If you don't know what that is, basically, it is an opportunity for a lot of rural pastors. You know, there are, there are a lot of faithful pastors who retire from smaller churches where they have labored throughout, you know, decades and decades of ministry. And when they finally get to retirement, there, there's not a lot waiting for them. There's not a lot of funding. There's not a lot of money uh, to help them through the final years of their, their lives. And Mission Dignity is something that he started to care for pastors and their wives as they are in, you know, in the final stages of their lives to literally to give them dignity and allow them to enjoy those years without struggling uh, in in the way that they otherwise might. And it's a it's a really incredible ministry that Guidestone, through the leadership of O.S. Hawkins, has has created and sustained for many years. Well, and this just gives us an opportunity as well to highlight the SBC entities and the structures that we have in place and the way that we are able to offer support systems to so many believers so that ultimately they can walk faithfully with Christ and carry the gospel forward. So, you know, Lifeway with resources and Guidestone, like we said, with this mission dignity and and other financial resources, um, NAM with North American Mission Resources and Send Relief and IMB. It's just as one who has operated outside of the SBC for a season in ministry and had to raise support, it just made me all the more appreciative of the institution of the SBC and really hopeful for the continued health and flourishing of the SBC. Also, we can't mention O.S. Hawkins without mentioning his wife, Susie Hawkins, who also has incredible ministries, uh, a widow's ministry, and has just done incredible things alongside her husband as well. All the all the SBC feels there, friends. That's right. Those are, those are some good takes. All right. Well, so Lindsay, Josh, that is your look at This Week in Culture. If you're like most pastors or church leaders, you're probably facing difficult questions this fall. Questions like, how can I advocate for important issues without hindering my gospel witness? And what responsibilities do we have to engage in this current moment? Today, I'm excited to tell you about the Courage and Civility Church Toolkit, a brand new free resource from the ERLC that answers those questions and more. This toolkit doesn't tell people how to vote, but it does tell them how Christians should think through issues of our day as they see the chaotic culture around us. It gives pastors and church leaders a helpful path to teach their congregations about the things that truly matter and show them how to process this polarized moment. You can find a link to this toolkit in our show notes. So now we're about to talk to an SBC legend, Pastor Bryant Wright. Uh, pastor Wright was a former president of the Southern Baptist Convention. He was the longtime pastor of Johnson Ferry Baptist Church in the state of Georgia, and he is now serving as president of Send Relief, which is a joint partnership between the North American Mission Board and the International Mission Board. And we are really excited about this conversation. 
as we're getting started, would you please uh, just tell us a little bit about yourself and how the Lord has you serving in ministry right now? And while you're telling us that, would you also tell us one thing that God is teaching you in this season of life and ministry? Well, thank you for the opportunity to be with you today and to share a little bit about myself. I grew up in Atlanta, uh, blessed with a great Christian home. Made a commitment to Christ, though, of really understanding that relationship with the Lord through young life before my senior year of high school. I'm very thankful for that ministry and helping me to get on on the right direction of following Christ on a day-by-day basis. Met my wife, Ann, at the University of South Carolina. She was actually at Columbia College, a Methodist girls' school across town, but thankful we've been able to celebrate 46 years of marriage with three grown sons. Our oldest, who's a pastor at Shandon Baptist in Columbia, and middle son is has his own commercial construction firm, and then my youngest son is an attorney here in Atlanta. They're all married to fine Christian women, and we have seven grandchildren. And thankful to have Pastor Johnson Perry, 38 years as the founding pastor, and thankful to how the Lord has led in my successor there in Clay Smith, and it was really a wonderful time of transition in the final months of 2019. And now uh, I'm excited to be in this new role as president of Sin Relief and uh, really the forming of a new ministry with the IMB and NAM uh, coming together on that. And I think the main thing God is teaching me in this season is that great verse in James where he talks about people saying they'll go to such and such a city and do business and make a profit and do these things. And COVID-19 has just made it very clear. We have to say, Lord willing, about daily, weekly, monthly, annual planning, uh, because all of us have faced the most unique experience we'll probably ever face and having to say, Lord willing, about any planning that we do. So I think that's the, the biggest reminder that the Lord has been teaching me over the last few months. And that seems like a common denominator in many of the lessons that believers are learning during this interesting season. And also just wanted to say thank you so much for your faithfulness at Johnson Ferry in a day and age when we uh, desperately need examples of Christian leaders uh, who are finishing well and passing on the torch well, and also not um, going in uh, to retirement to pick seashells, as John Piper famously said, but (laughs) who are just continuing to serve the Lord as He permits. So we're thankful for that. So this podcast focuses on Christians and culture. Can you tell us what things in culture you and those at the IMB uh, around you and Nam are paying attention to right now? Well, I think obviously with COVID, Lindsay, the, everyone is is facing a similar daily dilemma uh, of just the unsettled future and not knowing how long this will last and how this has disrupted everyone's life. And with COVID, then you've got the economic challenges and uncertainty that so many people are dealing with. And then you have the racial unrest that began intensely in May and have really gone beyond racial unrest to just cultural unsettledness with the anarchy in some of the cities and the unsettledness of all of that. And I I really wonder if that was intensified because of COVID, because all of us are tired of being cooped up or wearing masks or having limited social interaction. And it's hard to know how much that has been affected there. But then with the ideological divide within our culture, I think that's something all of us are are frustrated about 
just how, and that's not new. That's been going on for a good while now, almost a 50-50 split in the ideological divide with political correctness being the dominant view uh, versus a Judeo-Christian view. And so it's created a tremendous tension that all of us are constantly living with. So I, I think just there's just a, a multitude of things. I call it the creation groaning. It's not <laughs> That's not... Uh, original with me, it's out of Romans 8, and just, it's like creation is groaning. It's just like there's an unsettledness all throughout culture in these days. Well, Brian, so you serve as the president of of Sin Relief, sir, and and recently we've had some uh, great conversations uh, with you all with uh, ways that we can partnership uh, from the ERLC and with Sin Relief, and so we're thankful for that. And honestly, that's kind of what we talk about a lot on our podcast, are the different kinds of work that Southern Baptists are engaged in around the globe and, and here in North America. So uh, for those in our audience who might be unfamiliar with Sin Relief, could you tell them a little bit about it? Yes, thankful to have this opportunity to talk about that because really sin relief as it exists today is brand new. Uh, People within our convention have known of sin relief through the North American Mission Board's work, mostly in crisis response, storm responses, is going on right now with Hurricane Sally on the um, on really what is the southern Gulf Coast of Alabama and the Gulf Coast of Florida. But uh, sin relief now is really a ministry of the International Mission Board and the North American Mission Board together. And there's really a five-fold focus that most people don't realize at this point about sin relief, because obviously dealing with crisis response like storms is more evident to Southern Baptist Christians in the pews, but that's now international, working with our international missionaries, and it's combined what was called the Baptist Global Response the humanitarian aspect uh, of the International Mission Board is now with Sin Relief. So it could be a, a storm crisis or a flood crisis in Bangladesh, wherever our IMB missionaries are serving, seeking to respond to those crises. But there are four other areas. One is strengthening communities. One of the things that will be a focus that ERLC is, has been involved in in the past is focusing on this world hunger relief, global hunger relief offering that we're focusing on for October 11th, asking our churches to respond because with COVID, there's the sense that uh, experts are saying that the global hunger problems are going to be much greater this winter and in 2021 because there's so many Western cultures shut down economically for a period of time. It's cut off food supply issues in third world or poor nations around the world. So Uh, Strengthening communities is helping with hunger relief. It's helping, it could be drilling a well in a village where there's no clean water. Uh, It's helping with hygiene, education areas. There's so many aspects of that that will be uh, focused internationally and nationally. But there are three other areas, and that's care for refugees. It's really close to my heart because as Ann and I first visited those tents on the border of Lebanon and Jordan from Syrian refugees fleeing for their life. It's been a humanitarian disaster, but refugees are all over the world. I mean, in parts of Africa, uh, fleeing from Sudan and uh, Somalia, it's just huge uh, human needs among refugees. But what is so exciting there is so many of them are open to the gospel. They're so tired of the violence and the hatred that they've seen either in their culture or out of Islam that they are responding to the gospel amazingly. 
And so I'm excited that Sin Relief has a major focus there. And then two other areas, protecting children and families, whether it's health with orphans, uh, widows, uh, people in need, that's both domestically and internationally, and then fighting human trafficking that is a really an epidemic problem, not only here in the United States, but around the world, a modern form of slavery. So it's a very large area when you think about those five areas. And of course, Sin Relief is almost a drop in the bucket in the sense of battling these issues, but we really hope to be salt and light for Christ in seeking to minister in these areas. Well, as Southern Baptists and then really as Christians, we're so uh, proud of Sin Relief, um, having this ministry arm and um, being able to just go in Jesus's name and serve people in order to meet their needs and bring the gospel. And one specific initiative that we want to talk about and was one of the reasons we wanted to have you on the podcast today uh, was to talk about global hunger relief. So would you mind telling our listeners a little bit about GHR and why it's so important? It's always important because you've got poor nations that don't have a safety net like Western nations like the United States has when it comes to poverty and hunger issues. But this is this year's global hunger offering on October 11th, we really are hoping. And I'm so thankful for the RLC working with Sin Relief on this because we're really hoping churches and individuals respond in a special way as the needs are going to be so much greater because of COVID. And this is going to be ongoing. I, I, I think Southern Baptists don't realize how much it was a hot potato issue when it, it became a part of the Southern Baptist calendar of focus to have a global hunger relief offering back in the late 80s, early 90s, when Ethiopia was having a great famine. And We Are the World was a big focus from a secular perspective. Of It really had the attention of the world. But I think now, Lindsay, the big challenge is it's like we have a social justice flavor of the month. And there are so many hot potato issues that have to do with social justice, have to do with humanitarian causes, but they seem to be on the radar of people for about a month or two. And then there's a new social justice flavor of the month that is the hot potato thing. And so hunger is kind of gotten lost in the hunger belief has kind of gotten lost in the multitude of social justice concerns. But I hope that in light of COVID and people seeing how important this need is, uh, people will be responding in a greater way than ever before. Because there's, there's an old saying, a hungry man has no ears. And really what that means is when a person is starving, they have little interest in hearing about the gospel, but they're just focused on that interest of the next meal and where they can get food. But when, when that need is met, then their ears are often open to hearing about the ultimate need, and that is receiving the bread of life, that relationship with Jesus Christ. So I really hope Southern Baptist Christians will respond in a greater way than ever before in seeking to meet this need so that we can share the good news of Christ with people that are hurting. Man, that's a that's a great answer. All right, so uh, for for this last question, sir, um, as we talked about before, you founded and pastored Johnson Ferry Baptist Church and were there for thirty eight years. Gosh, what a what a great time! But you're also a former SBC president, uh, so you know you probably know the Southern Baptist Convention better than most people. Uh, we love to highlight good news on this podcast. So could you tell us uh, any things going on in the SBC today that are particularly encouraging to you? Well, there really are many things uh, that are 
encouraged, and I'm so thankful for J.D. Greer's leadership as president of our convention. He he was thrown a surprise because of COVID and serving a third year, and uh, thankful he's able to be in that role. But I'm really thankful for the leadership he has provided. Also, him he is really the first Gen X president for the Southern Baptist Convention, which was a needed transition and a handoff to the younger generation, just as God led me to hand off John Safari to a younger pastor, which is so needed to have a younger pastor's voice in that leadership role. I'm so excited that J.D. represents a new generation in leadership. It is, it's really great that he has addressed some difficult issues along the way while keeping Hoosier One and evangelism and the Great Commission as a primary focus, uh, which is really our heritage. That's really where we as a convention have had our primary focus, and I'm thankful for that. And, of course, he is now uh, having the theme in the next year's convention of calling ourselves Great Commission Baptist. That's close to my heart. Uh, Study that more from a, a regional name that was hindering our Great Commission cause and planting churches here in the United States was part of the motivation I had in developing the task force to study that. And so I'm glad that he's keeping that focus out there. It's been about eight years since that time, and it didn't really catch on as a adopted name, so to speak. We're not changing the name legally. And what the convention passed in 2012 was not changing the name legally, which is incredibly complicated because to try to uh, summarize this briefly, I came to realize that when you've got 40-something state conventions, they are all autonomous, and they would all have to decide whether they're going to adopt that new name or keep the old name, which would really be basically chaos. So we realize that as many churches have done, whether it's Summit Church or whether it's the People's Church at West Palm, which is actually First Baptist Church of West Palm Beach, Florida, uh, it allows you to have a new identity that hopefully describes what your priorities are. And Great Commission Baptist, to me, is a wonderful way to describe the priority we want to have as Jesus gives that to us. So I'm thankful for that. But I'm also thankful that we're going through a time where we have so many students in our seminaries and our strong evangelical colleges. And when you see that, you know the future is bright. So many of these passionate young uh, spiritual leaders in our convention going to the areas where there's great lostness and lifting up the gospel of Christ to where you'll see more and more people coming to Christ. So I'm hopeful in that regard. I know the stats in the last few years have not looked good in regards to all that, but I really do believe there's going to be a bottoming out changing there. Well, Pastor Wright, we would give you all the time in the world uh, to share that good news with us and that perspective. I am incredibly grateful, we all are, for your uh, long ministry. As Lindsay mentioned, uh, we've been following you for many years, appreciate your service. One, just in the local church, faithfully pastoring that church for almost 40 years. We appreciate your service as a you know SBC president and helping to lead our convention so faithfully. And now in this new role, we're just grateful to see you help to communicate to Southern Baptists the importance of communicating that the gospel of faith in Jesus is the only way that a person can have eternal life, but that Christians have a meaningful role to play in helping meet physical needs, to feed the hungry, to serve the poor. And we want to be the kind of Christians who can do those things at the same time. And so we really appreciate your leadership in that at this time. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Great to visit with you. Wish you all the best. 
So now it's time for the lunchroom, where every week we tell you about the things that we've been talking about with one another. Lindsay, you're up first this week. Tell us what's on your mind. Okay, so my lunchroom this week is not lighthearted. It's actually sad, but it's very important. Um, As one of our colleagues pointed out, uh, you all might be familiar with who Chrissy Teigen and John Legend are. So he's a he's a singer songwriter. Um, she is a was a model entrepreneur, different things like that. They're married. They have two children. They faced a lot of infertility issues, but she is extremely honest on her social media and her her Instagram posts. Which just a word of caution: she's not she doesn't always choose modest clothing, so just be careful there. But uh, she was sharing about their third pregnancy, which they actually uh, broke the news in one of John Legend's music videos, apparently. Um, And so she'd been hospitalized with a lot of bleeding early on in this pregnancy. And then she shared just vulnerably, including pictures, how they had just had a miscarriage. She was in the hospital, I believe, for a couple of days after being on bed rest. And they just could not, they could not give the baby what, what he needed. And so they lost this little one. And I think the importance of this it's so sad. And and so many women have been through this. I think the importance of this is having someone with such a platform share about miscarriage when many women uh, feel alone in the midst of, of miscarriages, because it is very common. Um, but then also, as our colleague pointed out, in a society where uh, the celebrity culture is not very pro-life by and large, this is an extremely important statement as to the value of this little one's life. They named, they knew he was a a son and they gave him a name, Jack, and just expressed their desire that that he would have lived, but also their love for him and for one another. And so it's a sad and yet beautiful reflection of the value of life that I think is so important for them to have shared on their platforms. Obviously, we think that is incredibly sad. And anytime uh, someone loses their life, it's tragic. But in this case, uh, a parent losing a child or parents losing a child is one of the most difficult and devastating things that can happen to a person. Having walked with couples who have gone through this and seen the absolutely devastating toll it can take, it is, you know, my heart goes out to them. And, and I prayed for them this morning after I found out this news because it's devastating. It's life altering. And so, uh, you know, I would encourage listeners to, to also pray for them. And Lindsay, I think what you said is exactly right. That one of the things that shows us is the undeniable value of human life. No one is questioning right now, whether or not, uh, Jack's life mattered. It, it did. And it does. And for this couple, it will continue to matter for the rest of their lives. And so I think that's that that we can all take away from that and honestly just just pray for them as they're hurting and grieving and pray that God would use this opportunity to make himself known to them. So I just wanted to share that because I thought it was just so important and so so vulnerable of them to share. And I think it's gonna actually serve a lot of people. What do you have, Josh? I'm sorry I started on a sad note. Yeah, well, I mean, we call this section of the lunchroom because we literally are just sharing the same conversations that we would be having anyway. Mine is not, you know, just shifted to something that is totally lighthearted. So I'm in the middle of a major research project right now, and I am spending all of my time, I feel like, sitting at this desk at my computer uh, working. 
what I have found for relief when I get to the place where I just can't, you know, I can't do anymore, can't work anymore, but I'm not quite ready for, for bed or sleep or to play with my kids or whatever. I have been turning to in probably 20 minute increments, uh, the Star Wars series. And across the last few months, I have watched uh, the first six movies now. And when I say first six, I mean the originals plus the prequels. And so now I'm ready to move into the the movies that were just released, uh, which I guess would be seven, eight, and nine. And so anyway, I've just really, really been enjoying this uh, return to Star Wars. It is jarring to go from the prequels straight into the uh, originals because obviously it's so different. And um, if you haven't done that in a long time or haven't done that before, it's really cool, especially so the version that's on on Disney Plus, they have at the end, I won't spoil anything for you, but they have tried to do what they can to integrate uh, the prequel storyline in with the originals. And it was a, it's a really cool thing. So, you know, if you're a star Wars fan or never watched the movies before you have Disney plus, they're all there for you. Just take a ride through the star Wars universe. I love that you're doing that, Josh, because I had never watched the star Wars movies. Maybe I'd seen bits and pieces, but especially not the originals. And my husband loves star Wars. So we did that and it was so much fun. I thought, the, but the way to watch them for me was to watch them with somebody who really likes them too. So I could stand like the, the oldness of the old movies, although they were very cool for their time, pretty amazing for their time. And we were talking earlier that I recommend also Mandalorian. So I know it's one of those outliers, but it's on Disney Plus, but it's so much fun. And I think there's a, there's a new season that might be coming up too. Yeah, the new season's about to come out. I started The Mandalorian when it first came out and did not make it all the way through, so I'm going to return to that. And I think actually the way where The Mandalorian storyline is situated, it's between uh, the final original and what would be The Force Awakens. So I'm planning to try to jump in and, and watch The Mandalorian as well. Brent, have you seen the Star Wars movies? I've seen some, not all. I am a big fan of The Mandalorian, though. Mandalorian's really good. You so. saw, so you saw Mandalorian. Good for you. I did see a Mandalorian, yeah. But Mandalorian, I thought, was was really uh, really well done. All right, so I'm bringing it to the lunchroom this week. Um, it was sparked by a podcast interview that Jonah Goldberg has done this week. It just dropped this week with John Dickerson of CBS News. I'm mentioning CBS News a lot this week. I'm, I'm not sure why, but... Uh, there it is. So anyways, he's a special correspondent for 60 Minutes, uh, formerly was the host of Face the Nation, uh, and he is a presidential history nerd, and I love it. Uh, he just recently released a book over the last few months, a book called The Hardest Job in the World, and it's about the American presidency. Uh, well, this interview that uh, Jonah Goldberg did on his podcast uh, called The Remnant, it was just a, a fantastic just review of the book itself, getting uh, Dickerson's thoughts on the, the state of the presidency and how we got to this point and where we go from here. And uh, just in this moment of, um, you know, the, the season that we're in with the election, I think it is great uh, to have a book like this on your shelf um, because, it's really good. And the uh, the interview uh, that Jonah Goldberg did with John Dickerson was was pretty exceptional. I'm actually really looking forward to this book. I, I'm not sure I'm going to have time to read it soon, so I may try to get it on Audible and just listen to it. But it is, I'm fascinated by this stuff anyway, and this is one that I've been looking forward to. 
Well, with that, we're going to leave it there. But just as a reminder, you can find links to all of the things we talked about today in the show notes. And if you like the podcast, please consider helping us spread the word by sharing the episode on social media or going to your podcast app and leaving us a rating or review. But for Brent and Lindsay and myself, we want to say thanks so much for listening. And we'll be back next week with more content.